Let's make sure history never forgets the name. Sci-fi melody. Got out. So, Scott, what are we doing today? Uh, we've got Star Trek Enterprise First Flight. But we're waiting for Rage. Sci-Fi Malady, Symptom 274, First Flight. Go, Archer, go, Archer, go! And I can see people with very questioning looks on their face going, the third best Enterprise in this episode of Enterprise, in this guy's opinion, is First Flight? Stay with me, folks, and I will explain. But It's uh, got the human experience though not a bad episode oh no not bad at all i feel like okay so this one originally didn't make the cut and i'm going to even weird everyone out more as to why or what this one replaced and this one replaced the season three zindi arc trilogy that centered around the episode azadi prime and so we usually start off in, in any, not usually start off, but we usually have a discussion in any trekking into the new year of why I chose an episode. Uh, we're also going to get a little bit of why I didn't choose Azadi Prime, because we get into that with um, Inner Light and City on the Edge of Forever, why I didn't have those included uh, in my favorite episodes. First and foremost, let's start with why I chose First Flight. This is what the show should have been for the first season or two. And by that, I mean, we should have started with humanity on Earth, trying to get the warp engine tests correct before they could greenlight and install a warp 5 engine into the NX-01 and start the deep space program. We should have seen character building episodes like this. We should have got to see the human space program interstellar space program in its infancy we could have found out that there were boomer cargo ships out there flying at warp 1.8 but before they went on to launch the nx-01 in a true deep space exploration mission they needed to test and, and iron out the wrinkles in the warp 5 engine i think that would have been more believable it would have given the writers time to find the characters it would have given them time to figure out what they want to do uh, universe building wise, world building wise, in this 22nd century prequel, they could have got their ducks in a row instead of jumping right in with some really terrible episodes and introducing species that we've known for decades, like the Andorians and the Vulcans, and doing it in a way that was absolutely terrible. You had time to baby step your way into this and show the infancy of the program developing, building towards. This awesome moment that the audience can go on the ride for to launching the NX-01. And so that's one reason why I chose this episode. The second reason why I chose this episode, I went back and I really started looking again for a season two episode because while season three is seen as where the show turned around, to me it really started happening in season two when they started to lock down and tighten up the T'Pol-Trip-Archer relationship. And this is one of those episodes that really shows the evolution of the T'Pol character, which was essential to getting this show correctly. 
the relationship between her and Archer, and even more so tying Trip in as that third person. Even though you don't see a lot of Trip in this, and it's it's uh, at least Trip Prime in the relationship between T'Pol and Trip, you get to see the backstory of Trip and Archer, and while they're so close, and you get to see T'Pol and Archer make another step, and you also get to see the evolution of the T'Pol character at the end, where she stops watching the sensor data come in and just watches the visual extravaganza that is the anomaly. And for those reasons, I felt this was this was an essential episode of Enterprise. I I totally see where you're coming from because I I think I'm trying to remember everything. You would probably know much better than me, but I feel like this is the first episode where she really becomes less of just ah yes the walking sexy Vulcan to oh she actually has some character well carbon creek uh, carbon creek was the one that really did that and and uh what to me was one of the first episodes where you really see the evolution and the softening of the T'Pol character and that was early in season two and this is towards the end uh book ending season two at, at episode 24 but it's definitely to me an important one where you see her getting in touch with i don't want to say her humanity but it, it obviously it's, it's her humanity well, yeah, but I, I do like kind of seeing a little bit of the earlier humans because, yeah, it, you only really get to see the humans at, you know, this level. And you're like, well, what happened before? Well, and that makes sense why you picked this, Scott, because though I thought it was a good episode, I was thinking it's an episode. It's <clears throat> there's nothing super extraordinary about what happens. But when you put it in that way, yeah, it is kind of. Star Trek getting in its own lane and deciding to show you, well, here's what it was like at the beginning, and quite honestly, we should have started there. Um, I mean, really, the plot is just Archer going out to explore a nebula, and in the process, explaining to Paul how he and A.G. Robinson, well, he found out A.G. Robinson died in a mountain climbing accident, and then Paul asked about it, And he just explained how he and A.G. Robinson were working on the first warp engine to go to warp five. And that was it. I mean, and they succeeded, of course, through different trials and error, but they didn't get warp five. It was just two two. two point something. This was the warp 2.5 test to break the 2.5 barrier. Yeah. But but the point is, it was more just about the early days of Vulcans trying to put a limit on it and um, A.G. and Archer essentially breaking ranks against Commodore Forest, which anyway, uh, (laughs) we've talked about this before with the Commodore ranks, but Mm -hmm. nonetheless, uh, and just winding up proving to the Vulcans and uh, Commodore Forest that no, this was possible and we were able to do this. And uh, despite losing one craft and it's the baby steps of humanity. So, and I think, you know, Scott, with your uh, blessing, there's some really neat trivia here. Some no, fun facts it. I want to go do into. And they're, they're pretty long, by the way. Um, so, Trip refers to Captain Jeffries, an engineer who worked on the NX program in the 2140s and, designed to, and later designed the NX class. Well, that name is coming from Walter M. Jeffries. 
who was the art director in Star Trek in, in TOS and designed the Enterprise, the D7 class, Klingon battlecruiser, and a lot of other ships. Now that's an Easter egg. So in fact, in one episode uh, where it required a tight working space, uh, that's why they call them Jeffrey's tubes. You know? I did not know that. That yeah. is pretty awesome. It's named after the designer, so that's pretty neat. Um, <clears throat> well, that ex- at least explains somewhat why that came from, because that made no sense to me before. Right. So and that's why they named it after uh, Jeffries, the designer. In the 602 Club, where the pilots hang out, there are paintings and patches of many of the spaceships mentioned in Star Trek, including the DY-100 class, the Phoenix, the NX Alpha, USS Enterprise, um, and there's an assignment patch of the Earth-Saturn probe featuring Christopher and astronauts O'Hearley and Fontana, named after Michael O'Hearley and D.C. Fontana, the director and writer of Star Trek Tomorrow is Yesterday, the episode where it was mentioned. So, little more of those um, references to previous Trek writers. That's a nice nod. I think it's really great that they, uh, that they are paying homage to D.C. Fontana, who had to go by the pen name D.C. Fontana because they couldn't let viewers at the time know that D.C. Fontana was a woman because it might take away from her writing cred. She was yeah. one of the people who got both the original series, a major player in the original series, and got Next Gen off the ground. It's, you know... 60s. Not, it, it was just sad that that's what it had to be, but... Um, this episode was directed by LeVar Burton, who, of course, we know as Jordy LaForge. Um... <clears throat> Excuse me. So Commodore Forrest's role is somewhat similar to that of Deke Slayton of the early man space program at NASA. Slayton was an, one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts. And uh, so that's kind of neat little thing. Uh, also, the during AG's test flight, Archer was the person in charge of communicating with him. And this goes back to the days during the Mercury program when astronauts would be communicating with the guys in the shuttle, or excuse me, the uh, craft in space, because both of them could speak the same language, meaning they could say exactly what the other guy knew since they trained together. And that would be a far better method of communication than a non-astronaut talking to an astronaut. Um, so they, that was just a nice nod to earlier uh, NASA and um, missions but well again you know so much lasted past that world war three and all those other wars we had all that knowledge about nasa afterwards of yeah of course of course yeah there's real problems <laughs> there's real problems with the timeline here because i mean they go to uh 2000s detroit at some point which is supposed to be at the time when you know, World War Three has happened, and Khan Noonien Singh is ruling a quarter of the Earth, and the 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 augments are running around the genetic Superman. But we don't mention that in the season three episode when they go back in time. It's, it's uh, best just to forget about the World War Three nineteen nineties Khan Superman stuff when you can, except for well, when we talk about it again later on this month. Yeah. Uh, in the 602 Club, the Rings game from Star Trek Voyager, Fairhaven can be seen. I did not catch that. 
Well, now you're going to go back and look, aren't you? Yes, I am. Uh, This episode also marks the first appearance of a Commodore in Star Trek since the animated episode Star Trek, the animated series, The Counterclock Incident. Just, I just throw these ones out because I want Scott to be like, oh, yeah. I, right. do, I do remember the counterclock incident, and that's Commodore Robert April. Mm-hmm. Yep. The former I and think, first captain of the Enterprise before Pike. Yeah. And the last one I'll give is kind of neat. There's a scene where uh, one of the episodes, I forget which, where Tucker and Malcolm are stuck on a shuttle, and they're talking about women and they mention ruby at the 602 club well she finally makes an appearance in this episode <laughs> this is the ruby they're talking about uh so with that in mind i mean take away scott all right so there's a <laughs> lot the sh- of the chair is yours captain i do want to just get back to one thing i said which was why not azadi prime because i threw that out there and i've got to finish it off not like an unloaded Chekhov's gun. Unless we were going to do everything that connects to Azadi Prime, um, I felt it would have been too difficult to show that as one episode and take that away as being a good example of Enterprise. I also felt that um, I try to picture these as if I wanted to take out the single best encapsulations of what the show could have been or was. And and when you're in the middle of a serial, it makes it very hard to pick out any individual episode. Now, for my second favorite episode of Enterprise, we are going to do a three-part trilogy. But it was possible to self-contain that into the three-part trilogy rather than as a um, part of a season-long arc, which is what we would have had to do with Azadi Prime. Azadi Prime is an excellent episode, but only if you understand everything that's come up to Azadi Prime. If you don't understand everything that comes up to it, it doesn't work as a standalone on its own, whereas I think some of these other episodes do. Um, That said, let's get into, um, before we do rips and picks, I think there is something in here. Star Trek is a message show. And I know that that what you get here in, in some of it is it's modeled after the right stuff. And it's just supposed to be a fun little story about, um, showing how they got into space and showing something that impacted Archer and a character-building episode between Archer and T'Pol. But at the same time, I like the fact that you see... To me, it, 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 it's an excellent encapsulation of the Roddenberry vision in some ways. In the future, Gene Roddenberry wanted humanity to have grown beyond conflict. But we're not there yet. But we are seeing the baby steps. Another example of where I think that this is the show we should have had. You see Archer and A.G. Robinson motivated by pride to be the first person to break Warp 2.5. Archer's living in the simulator. He says, does anyone remember what Neil Glenn or John Glenn said when he stepped on the moon? And, you know, I know some people do, but I don't. You remember what Neil Armstrong said. Um, But they're motivated by human pride. If we did this story in the next generation era, neither person would have been motivated by that pride. And they would have been trying to get the best person for the job to take it then you see more human emotions that they haven't grown by grown past with archer having an attachment to the engine because it is his father's engine and ag calls him on that and it starts a fist fight now you see the ugly side of humanity 
our emotions, our pride, our greed, our irrationality. Uh, AG doesn't consider pilot error because that would make him look bad. He'd rather potentially at that moment kill the whole program than admit that it was potentially pilot error, which it was pilot error, AG. You were given an abort order and you didn't take it. So to, to discount that, Trip's right. Um, but then you start to see everything that makes humanity better the very next day. AG apologizes for what he said, saying, I was out of line when I said that about your father's engine. And Archer says, no, I've done the reflecting, and you're not wrong. This is what we need to fix. And you start to see humanity setting aside our differences, working together, overcoming our baser, lower emotions. And by doing that, by bringing out the best in everybody, whether that's Trip, AG, and Archer working together, is how they break that 2.5 barrier, which had they not set their differences aside, had they not set their ambitions aside, worked together to solve the problem, who knows how long the Vulcans might have got their way and it might have been 100 years before humanity got into deep space. So I think most of what you see in TOS and in Next Generation is supposed to show that when humanity finally defeats all of our evils, our poverty, our war, our bigotry, our racism, and we overcome the greatest challenges ahead of us, it's because we set aside our own personal selfish motivations to work for the greater goal. And you see the baby steps of that happening here, and it shows you a point in the journey to where we go from who we are today and when we start taking our steps on that journey to becoming the people that you see in Star Trek The Next Generation who are rise above personal conflict, rise above the accumulation of things, as Picard says, in the neutral zone to. Um, to, uh, to, to, to one of the people that they thought out of the, the time capsule, and I'm, it's driving me crazy that I can't remember his name because I do know his name. But anyway, you see this evolution, and this is what this show was supposed to be, a bridge between us today and who we see on the bridge in TOS and Next Gen. And in so many ways, you got that out of this episode, and I love this episode for that. Well, it does help because I've never, don't get me wrong, I kind of understand some of it, but I've never understood the idea of Star Trek's utopia and how it would actually function in my head, because I'm like, well, amb ambition is needed. We don't live in that kind of a world, that's why. Right, but I'm saying it, 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 the whole thing is it's kind of based, well, humanity started where we are now and becomes this, and it's very hard to look at it and go, how? How on earth could humanity ever drop everything and just become this peace-loving hippie well, group that... It certainly is the fiction part of this science fiction. Well, you need some... Well, the science is not exactly... <laughs> well, yeah, either. of course. I'm just, I'm just saying it's one of the heavier fictions. Um, it is, but at the same time... So... <sighs> You know, one of the things that I think I like most about Star Trek and draws me back in over and over again is the potential realization of this Roddenberry vision. It's not, Thomas, that ambition has been bred out of the species. What your ambition is has shifted. As Picard will say, we've, we've grown beyond, we're not obsessed with the accumulation of things. And he says, well, what's the point? And he says, to make yourself a better person make yourself a better individual, to make humanity as a whole better. So we put our ambition into 
developing an engine that can go at warp 9.975 and not being the person who gets the credit for developing the engine that goes warp 9.975. The ambition is to put our energy into making sure that everyone has food, not making sure that I have a Maserati. And uh, I'm not there as a person, and most of us aren't there yet. And it's going to take a lot of time to get there. Uh, I well, guess, uh, see, see, that's right there. You, you assume <clears throat> that that would be positive and only positive. Well, I guess, I guess the thing is here, Roddenberry took kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and said, what if everybody had achieved self-actualization? And in that case, well, in that case, well, there's no higher to go. You need a goal. You well, need and, and we had a life. Goal. Once you once you took care of the, and of course, this is this is going really hyper simple. So this is where the heavy fiction comes in. Once you found that economic system that just works that we shall never speak of because if we do, it'll fall apart. Um, <laughs> but once we go into this and just say for the sake of our argument, look, it just works, roll with it. Otherwise this thing doesn't work. Yeah, no um, one's ever explained their non-currency based economics. And there's system. no need to for the purpose of this. Cause it's the same way with superheroes getting bit, a radioactive spider. If such a thing could exist would not bestow spider powers, but shut up or otherwise Spider-Man doesn't work. You know what I mean? Um, that kind of thing. Uh, it's very much the suspension of disbelief. So once you got rid of that barrier, which is the lowest level of the hierarchy of needs, and of, of course, someone could say Maslow's off his rocker, and that's fine. But once you get past that and start working your way up and say, well, once everybody reaches self-actualization, there's kind of this, I don't know, pseudo-enlightenment where, well, We don't need to play competition for these things. We don't need to one-up each other. I don't need to one-up Elon Musk, and Elon Musk doesn't need to one-up me. Uh, We instead can look and say, well, we have what we need, and we're quite content where we are. So how do we join forces? I, I guess that's the... And of course, we personally cannot see how that works. Um even coming from a Christian perspective, we know that's how it ought to work, but we also have to add the notion that, well, God's going to somehow bring that. He's going to be the focal impetus for that. Whereas Star Trek is saying, no, God is as the one episode that Scott loves yet laments. uh, We no longer need gods. Um, And then we find the one sufficient. Yeah, he that was clearly added to the network forced him to add censors. that. What's that? The network forced Roddenberry to add that line. Right, right, right. But that, but the intent was to say that that well, we've moved on from that, and uh, we've all achieved self actualization in our own right. And um, I guess that's how you just have to you just have to pretend that everyone's gotten to that point, and don't ask how because it'll make the whole thing fall apart. Well, I get, I get that, but this is why I kind of like this episode. And oh. it's because humanity working in that way, that 
Well, they, we've clearly moved past step one, two, and three, but we're still working our way up to self-actualization. Well, yeah, you see humanity still being, well, human in many ways. You yeah. still see humans, well, being what humans should, all, not should, will always be in some ways, which will be fighting with one another, struggling with one another. I don't yeah. care if I don't need you know, food, so I'm not w- fighting with someone else for a chicken sandwich, but yeah. doesn't mean I'm not going to want to fight with him for some other thing. There's, Yeah, we're still working on that republic of virtue, so to speak. Right, um, and, and I don't, that's the thing. You don't, you don't see this, I mean, even the Commodore, when the Vulcans walk in, oh, just what we need. You know, perfect. Right. Like, yes! Come on, any human can look at that and see themselves. You're not now going, ah, yes, that's humanity in the future when we no longer are us, we're someone else. You're looking at it and going, I can see myself in that position and going, yeah, Vulcan's great. They're holding us back. Just what we need. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's conceivable what happens in Star Trek just at this very level. Do I think we'll get there? No. But it's conceivable for the purpose of fiction because if you consider where humanity was, say, 300 years ago compared to our mentality now, uh, that would have been uh, inconceivable how for someone to take the mentality we have, just a simple example I can use for those of us who are, especially those of us in the U.S., we kind of take for granted that a lot of people like to say that the American Revolution wasn't a revolution, yada, 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 but we are forgetting from whence it came uh, that the ideals were quite revolutionary in fact, there was a great video about that from the cynical historian. I would suggest you watch if you're not sure. But the idea being that if you consider where people were thinking at the time, now we just take it for granted. Something like freedom of religion, that's just a taken for granted. But if you go back to the time of 1760s, that was alarming. The idea that everyone could have their own faith. I, and I just want to know. No say in that. That's Who's saying that the American Revolution isn't revolutionary? In a, in a uh, side, in a side. Well, go ahead, Mark. They're taking the view that because society didn't fundamentally change, it's not revolutionary. And uh, well, yeah, it didn't like, change everything in the world. But I mean, ho- well, I mean, the same guy. What? It was meet yeah. the new boss. Meet the new boss. It's exactly the same as the old boss. But. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with the argument historically that the American Revolution was not a revolution. A revolution usually requires bottom-up change. Then, Scott, and I the, would tell yeah. you, then, Scott, I'm going to direct you to that video because um, I know, I, I, I know the counter view of a revolution is merely everything got upended and we deposed our czar, well, then I guess, yeah. No, but, that, that's not my view of the revolution, but in, in a revolution, the... It depends on your view of the revolution. If the same class and the same individuals are ruling at the end of it, then there's not a revolution. It's kind well, of the same problem with, with Reconstruction, that is that the same people who were you know, in charge in the South when the Civil War started were in charge in the South when the Civil War ended. I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm telling you, I find that too narrow a definition. So, 
Um, yeah. uh, that, that, that's a whole we, we, side can, We don't have time to. No, we don't. We don't. Have, Scott, we're getting rabbit trailed no. now. But I know. So the, yeah, I agree. The, the point is that I can see, given what people thought then versus now, and the leap in mentality. I could see that happening here, and this is an, and Scott's point, which is good, is that this is kind of a transitional midterm. Okay, between now and TNG, what happened? Correct. And this is where this is where people were definitely better than we are now, but not T, not TNG. Yep. And, and and the rest of this series tried to show that they it was just we had already got there. We were the TOS people, at least the TOS people, just without as good a technology. And and that's and, what I like that this show kind of this episode showed that journey. Um, Mark Thomas, I, I will say that I do believe that humanity can and will get there, but I think Roddenberry has the catalyst wrong. I, I, it's not going to happen in our well, generation either. I think he has the catalyst wrong. I think the reason yeah. that we're motivated by greed in the end, we're always motivated by what's in it for us, and it's because we live in a scarce in a scarcity economy. The right. theory behind the, the Federation utopia is that they have moved into a post-scarcity economy, which is why I get so angry in the first episode of Picard or the second episode of Picard where they have a discussion on the income inequality of, that Picard has versus, versus Ravi uh, because it's, the, it's 24th century Earth. There is no income inequality. They've eliminated that. Well, There's no it's, scarcity. It's disregarding Star Trek is what Correct. it is. But the whole, the whole thing of the Federation is that it is a post-scarcity economy. So my belief is that when we find a way to have an energy source, that essentially, I mean, part of it, the concept of the 3D printer is part of it. But imagine if you could 3D print food. Imagine if you could, if every house well, had- working a, on that. Right. Imagine if every house had a 3D printer that could make, and all the patterns were programmed into it already when you were given it by the government. And you had your 3D printer. Exactly. And, and then beyond that, though, the material that went into the 3D printer was costless. And there was no cost to it or so much that it's trivial. And that's what Star Trek has been able to do. It can provide food. It can provide building materials, resources, energy. <clears throat> it has so much energy abundant to it <clears throat> on 24th century Earth that there is no scarcity. And we know that a capitalist economy always is predicated in some way based on supply scarcity or lack of. If you so have any scarcity, economic yeah. system is any economic system is about scarcity. Right. That's the basic definition. Right. How to manage scarcity against competing wants and needs. Right. So when you have no scarcity and you have all of not only your basic needs met every single day or not, and, and not only your basic needs, but all of your wants and desires then what's left is for you to educate yourself, make yourself better, make society better. You do the job that you want to do. In theory, the people like Cisco's dad, who's a Creole chef, is a Creole chef because that's what he wants to do with his life. The people at his, at his place who are waiters, that's what they wanted to do. The people who are scientists want to be scientists. The people who are lawyers are, are there because they care about litigating the law rather than making money like Tim Misney. Oh, I should be careful about that. He might make me pay. But um, yeah, well, that's what he does. What if I want to take over the world? Can't do uh, that. No, because you've uh, moved you can't that. do that. You've moved. The thing is, again, going back to the Star Trek thinking, you have moved past that ambition. I also think there's a general will aspect of it. Of I think it's Rousseau who is the general will that would say that 
while you individually may have the aberrant desire to take over the world and rule it as a dictator, you are so much the outlier that the general will of society will self-correct that. Society has moved beyond wanting dictatorship at that point, too. Uh, and, and you can't have a dictator if the general will of society does not allow it. Um, so we're all ruled by Cocteau, basically. Is, is it? Oh, wait, no, you're talking about... Uh, I'm talking about Demolition Man, yeah. but um, I don't, yeah, that's, that's yeah. a bit too much. I don't want uh, to go too well, far off the deep But path. to be ruled by Cocteau, you have to have a society that wants to be. Um, well, it, it, the majority of it, at least, that wants to be. And, and the people who don't want society will force them out. Star Trek has always shown you people that live on the edges, but they're easily identified as the bad guy, and you're, they're seen as the aberrant behavior, and society as a whole, and the crew will self-correct that before the episode is over. Um, well, and, I, and so I think if you, if you figure out whatever it is that takes resource scarcity out of here, then all of a sudden people spend their life doing what it is that makes them fulfilled, makes them happy, and you become self-actualized. Maybe the yes. reason that we can't become self-actualized is the path to self-actualization doesn't put food in the table and doesn't take care of you, your family, your whatever. You, I well, mean, it doesn't work that well for someone who's got to take care of other people to be self-actualized before anything else. Well, sometimes, but you also have to realize what is your purpose in life? What, not just what fulfills you, what, what is your purpose? And see, well, again, Star Trek does this, which just brings us down philosophy paths all the time. <laughs> but it, it's the ultimate question of why. Why does human humans exist? What is our purpose for existing? What is our purpose for being here or doing anything? Now, depending on your beliefs and what you think, vastly different opinions on what that. You get vastly different answers to that question. Um, so now again, very clearly, uh, Star Trek takes the atheist viewpoint on that one, but sure, sure. Yeah, right. I'd say Star so, Trek is more humanist, but I'm splitting hairs if humanism and atheism are different things, but. Well, when you, when you have saying, I'm sorry, thing, humans are God and God. there are no gods. Eh, pretty close. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, that's, that's an atheistic stance, Scott, even though decide. I Take admit it, I'm splitting hairs, but technically they're mad, different they schools of thought. Say, I, no, uh, Scott is technically, you are correct. I'm not going to disagree with technically you are correct. But yes, it, so I, I get what you're saying, Scott, and I do. I just think I take a more cynical view on humanity, and I don't think even with scarcity removed, there would be an ability for humanity to to, to just remove everything that has made us survive for as long as we have. Which Not in the first been- couple generations, but I think we've oh, learned to channel our ambition differently. I'll, I'll just say one thing, and then we'll move to rips and picks and, and land this. Yep. I think we're already seeing it happen. There's far less war in the world today than there used to be, and a lot of people will attribute that to um, uh, mutually assured destruction. Are we talking major wars or wars? Major wars. War, to me, has always been generated by a Malthusian equation of where am I going to get more resources? Where am I going to get more food? If I want to grow, someone else has to collapse. 
But as we've moved towards some of this globalization, we've been able to keep major wars from happening. And where we see wars happen are areas where the effects of globalization haven't really taken taken hold. Uh, we're starting to see this break down again because we're coming up with some resource shortages and people are making some grabs for these resources and we're seeing some retrenchment and we're seeing some retreat from globalization. But you used to constantly, if you were a society back in the city-state days, if you weren't making war on the city over the next hill, you weren't going to grow. They might grow and then they're going to take you to, f- to fuel your growth. So it literally was grow or die. And as we've started to see that equation lose its power, we've started to see the impetus for wars of conquest fade. And if you can do the same thing with scarcity, then you can do it on an individual level. At least that's my optimistic view of the day. So before we go to rips and picks, Scott, I do have to say one thing. Yeah. You made a, a, a small blunder. Okay. No one knows what john glenn said when he sat down on the moon because he never did it oh buzz aldrin ah uh, yeah, yeah 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 technically right yep yep that's or a major he did, blunder he was well past the second guy to do it no 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 that was a major blunder that was wow i now you pointed out you're absolutely right so mm. uh yeah there we go Garth henderson took care of that <laughs> Good job, Dork. You got that one. Do you guys remember what George Washington did at the Battle of Chancellorsville? Because he wasn't there. (laughs) I don't know. Remember the Air Force Battle uh, of the Revolutionary War? (laughs) No, Scott. George Washington was not at Chancellorsville. It was George Washington Carver. (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) But um, Obviously. I don't know if there's going to be a ton of rips and picks because we kind of well, I have a pick love but yeah no I, I mean go ahead yes. I like the bar scene scenes <clears throat> it might sound stupid but it again brings a little bit of realism into this uh not the bar fight the bar fight was a terrible fight scene oh my god course. yes it was no one takes a beating like Jonathan Archer <laughs> I'm like, wow, you guys can't even, uh, that's not a punch. That's not even, this looks like, you know, Star Trek one fighting. I can't even the Gorn or whatever that like, wow. Choreographer was sick that day. Everybody who wants to watch two middle-aged men in a jumpsuit fight each other. (laughs) Yeah. No, not even. I mean, wow. But other than the fight scene, a good chunk of it was like, okay, this seems fairly realistic. Oh, the boss showed up. And we were all, uh, what do we do? Yeah. Okay. He, oh, crap. He's here. Right. You know, things like that. Haven't been here a while. Okay. It all seems reasonable, straightforward. Uh, hitting on the bartender makes sense. You know, getting drunk. All of it adds some realism to it that was, in my opinion, very welcome. I have two rips. And only two. Oh. I got to rip uh, Commodore Forrest. Shows up at the 602. Uh, used to come here. Hasn't changed much. Sits down and orders a beer and then unloosens his tie. To say, See, I'm one of you guys. I've unloosened my tie. I'm having a beer. Yeah. Let's <laughs> talk, guys. I'm not the Commodore. In the most uncomfortable, obvious way to make myself look like a regular man, I'm going to make myself... Clearly, distinctively, the Commodore trying to slum it with you guys. <laughs> nice failure, Commodore Forrest, of just being a normal guy. 
<laughs> and then um, my second rip is Ruby. Ruby, you've had names picked out for your kids since you're 10, and you'll marry the first guy who knows who they are. But what if he hates those names for his kids? <laughs> you love him. He loves you, but he hates those names. Or what if you, a butter rip? What if That's you don't a love the way guy? Of deciding your husband by right. just, I know. What, that, well, uh, what yes. do you do? What are you going to do too when someone guesses it right and you're like, oh, um, you know, I wasn't really that serious about this promise. No, 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 no. It's there, and uh, it's it's a verbal contract. It's binding. Yeah. What are you going to do if like Con Noonan and Singh walks Not in really and guesses with this binding <laughs> with <laughs> superior intelligence? Guesses the name of your kids that you're going to name your children. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm just going to say that is a terrible way of deciding your future spouse. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot Rumpel of bad Stilskin? ways, but that's a really bad one. <laughs> yeah. I've just picked up a random name out of the blue, and if you guess it, okay. See, if, if, if Tucker were smart, he would have been like, Rumpled Stillskin. <laughs> no, if he was smart and really wanted it, he would just sit there with an entire list of possible names and start going yeah. down the list. Yeah, and, and we've also found out that in Starfleet, everyone's personal journal is a, matter, is a matter of record. There's so many shows where they're like, oh, I'm going through this person's personal journals to try to figure out what happened. Wait, uh, yeah. Um, so Tucker um, could just so get her like, personal journals and figure out what the names are. <laughs> did you, uh, did, when you get a journal in Starfleet, does it come with the uh, uh, part of the I agree consent form is we can, any superior officer could pretty much just access it? Oh, anyone. Not, it doesn't have to be superior. That's true. Anybody else in Starfleet or just whoever happened to be by, really. There's some really scary things about Starfleet. Uh, there's a couple episodes in Voyager and in Next Gen that pretty much go to show you that the computer is tracking your every move, every minute, heart rate, location at all times that you're on board the yep. ship. All I'm going to say is I don't want to live in... This utopia future because I don't trust the government or computers that much. Also, you don't seem to be able to lock people out of the holodeck. Like I watched Jordy and Riker and Troy just barge into Barkley's private holodeck program, and thank God Barkley was just using it to remake the Three Musketeers, not what we know everyone would be using <laughs> the holodeck for. <laughs> but um, on a long journey away from anyone with a ship. Full of probably primarily men. Do we have any I, rips? I don't want to know the holodeck hard drive <laughs> floating around there. I don't. I don't want the job of cleaning out the hard the holodeck's biomatter filters. That sounds like you know what? That sounds oh. like a punishment. That was a uh, uh, lower decks punishment. Yes. <laughs> uh, any rips? Because we have a heart out. And we're going to see if we can hit the post in three minutes. Um, no, I, I mean that those rips were good, but that's about all I've got. Everything else is, um, I had the rip on the fight scene. Um, I'm going to have one more rip and this is a small one. The launch of the craft out of the hangar. Mm. I'm just going to say this using deployable flaps as you fly down a ramp going straight up. <laughs> is a stupid idea because um, there's about a million things that could fail and you would want to deploy those before to get your lift before. But okay, it looks cool. Yeah, there you go. 
Uh, any picks? I think we talked about the picks when we were uh, going and explaining why we uh, chose we did this too. episode. I think we did too. All right, let's yeah. rate this thing. How many dark matter nebulas out of 10 do we give it? I'm the wordiest of the bunch, so I'm going to start. I'm going to give it a nine. Um, it's a very good episode of Enterprise. It is a good episode of Star Trek all, all around. It encapsulate it encapsulates, I can't say that word, it encapsulates the Roddenberry universe and the philosophy of, and it's just a feel-good character development episode that shows you the bridge between the horrible people that we are today as humans and what we can become someday. Okay, um, I will give it a nine also. I understand what it encapsulates and why you chose it, Scott. It does work very well, and I do enjoy this episode a bit more than a lot of the others, so I do get it. Ragemaster! I'm going to give it a 9. It was a fun episode, nothing super special, but it shows, it, as you said, it's, it's what this show ought to have been from the get-go. Uh, and it's really, oh, I think everyone's, as much as I was entertained by this show when it first came out, I really was kind of hoping that it would show those first lurching steps, and it didn't. You know, it, it started with a Klingon arrival, and I wasn't even sure that's how it happened. I, uh, and I did know that they did a few flubs, but I was hoping they'd skip that and just go over this, and it's fun watching humanity take its first steps, and um, the the minus point, obviously. I guess this is a rip. You know, why are the Vulcans such jerks? You um, gotta ask Brandon Broder and Rick Berman. I just don't, you know, in fact, that's, they're jerks again, because we needed them to be. Um, I remember the first time you were watching this all the way through, I lent you the DVDs, and you texted me, Vulcans, wow, space dicks. <laughs> yeah i mean that's what they are yep and then they get into then there's wars and you find out there's a faction that's not so logical it's like what, what have you guys done yep. so all right for sake yeah. of brevity and time i'm just gonna do rage master spiel here um we got a lot of awesome stuff going on at raving lunatic media Scott, i can make it quick all right go ahead rage so anyway, you can check out our shows. We're tune in this week for a new episode of ZTF, Zodiac Task Force. I'm looking forward to that, written by yours truly. We've also got Ruck describing, describing why you should and why you should watch Jujutsu, Jujutsu Kaisen. You could listen to that and all our other shows and previous episodes of things that uh, either could go to Spotify, you could chat with us on Discord, or you could also visit our website at... RavingLunaticMedia.com, RavingLunaticMedia.com, or RavingLunaticMedia.com. Ragemaster, what's left for them to do? Stay sick, sickies. And we're out before 701.